Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Mark's a bit slippery because in morning church this morning it, it uh, got covered in olive oil, which is a thing that happens in uh, morning service. So if you want to know about that, you'll have to uh, see if someone from morning church is happy to uh, divulge that information to you. Um, yeah, it's, this, this feels weird. I feel like I'm only ever here talking without this and then getting to hand over the mic to someone else in a couple of minutes. And um, so, But, yeah, it's good, good to be sharing with you tonight and hopefully by the end of the night you'll really, really appreciate the preaching of Caro and, or- and um, Orange rather than mine. That's my aim. No, um, <laughs> no it's... Uh, I, I kind of put myself in for this job because we were talking as a, as a leadership about like, this verse that we're kind of sinking into in John 8. Um, the attempt at stone um, and uh, yeah it's some stuff that I've kind of journeyed with a bit in my own life so I sort of said a bit too enthusiastically oh there's some great stuff we can talk about here and then I'm like no and so here I am um, but that, that's good um, and yeah I think it's really I really love what we're doing as a church in terms of taking a scripture and looking at it through all these different lenses and getting to um, see and appreciate from different perspectives what's going on in a different passage. And I think the aim of that is not really necessarily to be getting an understanding of the Bible, it's to be getting a better understanding of who God is and um, what he's doing. And um, I was thinking about, about that and like the greatness of God. We can never really understand God. And in fact, I think with God, any understanding is actually just a misunderstanding of God. And so um, that might sound discouraging, but I think part of what we're, we're trying to do as a community, as a church, I think, is to, is to continue to get into new and deeper misunderstandings of who God is. And somewhere along, along the way, I think we are, we're getting a better knowledge of, of, of who God is. So, so I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to I'm going to take us into more misunderstanding somewhere. So that should be fun. Um, so let's, let's read this passage. So we're looking at John 8. We should probably already, most of us are pretty but we're going to sink into this a bit this month. So uh, John 8 and 2 to 11, we're going to read. So at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So it is... I think it's a beautiful story. It's really nice, but it can be one that is a bit tricky. Um, and I've certainly heard it 
used in ways that are not particularly helpful um, in the past. And I'm sure we've all got yeah, times in church when maybe we've heard um, things particularly about that last statement of Jesus um, and being used in ways that aren't helpful. But there's other weird things that are happening here, like why is the woman just dragged out on her own? Where's the man in all this? And there's some, there's some interesting stuff going on. Um, so, but today, oh, there's so much we could unpack in this, but today we're just going to have a look at particularly the dynamic that's happening in the crowd um, and this mob kind of effect that happens. And we're going to look at it through this, uh, the lens of the scapegoat mechanism. Or maybe actually, it might be better to think about we're looking at the scapegoat mechanism through the lens of the story. Um, and it's a really, the scapegoat mechanism, we'll dig into it. We've talked about it a little bit at the church before, but we're going to dig into it in a bit more detail today. And it's a super helpful thing um, that I've found in terms of how I see the world and how I see um, what Jesus was doing in his life here on earth as well. So um, the scapegoat mechanism, you'll see, put the next slide up, this lovely, lovely looking chap, René Girard. He um, only died a few years ago, um, but he was a, um, a philosopher, a French philosopher um, and a polymath which um, is like someone who's just like good at everything. I think essentially they're like really smart in lots and lots of fields. So he was a pretty, um, yeah, incredible guy. And he developed this theory of the scapegoat mechanism um, or sort of fleshed it out, I guess. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to kind of step through the three parts of, of the scapegoat mechanism um, and we're going to reflect on the story. But as we do it, so my hope, like I'm, I don't want to just be kind of just blabbering on, and I'm kind of hoping that this will be something we engage with together as a group. So if anyone's got any thoughts or questions along the way, feel free to just interrupt me. And then um, even if you don't, at the end, I'll make an interrupt and we'll have a, few, have a bit of a discussion about a few different questions and stuff. So, um, and part of that is because like, I think church, we're not supposed to just be like passive participants in church, we're supposed to be part of, part of a community together. And I think as we sink into these different parts of the Bible, it's really good to um, yeah, to actually for us all to bring our collective wisdom as a group to that and to chew on that and to um, yeah, contribute together. So that, that's the hope. Um, so the scapegoat mechanism. So it's sort of these three parts that Girard develops, and the first part of that is something called mimetic desire, which is this idea that we don't actually desire what we desire. It's not a straightforward thing like that. We actually desire through mimicking or through the desire of the other. Um, and so there's, there's probably a lot of ways we can, we can think about this. Like I think one of you, like, you know, what's the, what's the list of things you find attractive in a partner? Then you could probably, without thinking, rattle off a few different things. And they're probably things that aren't necessarily things that you actually immediately value. You'd have to probably stop and think a lot deeper. The, the automatic ones would be things that society has told us other things that we should look for in someone else. Um, so that's that's kind of this mimicking of what other people want. Or I think I think the, the clearest and most disturbing example in the world today is the mullet. <laughs> it's this thing, right? <laughs> Who? Actually, does, honestly, does anyone actually think a mullet looks good? Okay. Oh wow! Okay, we've got we've got one. There's always someone that's really broken. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but no, the thing like the mullet, the mullet is the mullet is incredibly ugly, right? But it's also taking off, and like anyone that works in a school will see that they are just everywhere, and it's it's this thing. 
Or just in the start. Yeah, these things that are horrible, but they become popular because of the mimetic theory, mimetic desire. We desire the desire of the other. We see other people wanting this thing, and we want it too. And it just is this kind of snowball kind of effect. Um, and yeah, you, there's probably fashion in general is, is probably something like that. Um, you could have the, the flannel. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, it's it's another it's an, it's an ugly item, but it's intentionally ugly. Except on Chris. Except on Chris. Goes very well with the mullet and a moustache. Yeah. So yeah, so fashion in general is this weird thing that really it's not necessarily the, necessarily the thing. It's the momentum around the thing and the desire that society generates through this um, mirroring of each other. Um, and so we see this effect, particularly when we get crowds of people together, either virtually or in, in the real world. And so this happens in the story. We have this crowd of people that kind of gather together and their desire was to trap Jesus, to, to get him stuck, to get really to find a reason to kill him. Um, but did they all... The crowd didn't all want that. Like the people that were gathered with Jesus to start with were gathered to listen to him speak. But somehow in this thing, they kind of all got bundled in together. And they probably didn't all want to be stoning this woman. But the, the mimetic desire, the, the unification of this mob formed this um, untruth amongst them that, that sort of snowballed. Um, and so that's this sort of progression that Gerard talks about is that he says mimicking um, each other becomes rivalry with each other and that rivalry inevitably leads to some sort of violence. Or um, Soren Kierkegaard, another philosopher, says the crowd is untruth and it's like the ability for us to, to think logically or have our own mind in these settings is almost impossible. Um, and so this violence... Um, Lead brings us to, oh, is that, which slides that? Did you flip forward to something clear? Oh, yeah. Cool. That's good. So, um, violence needs a target. It needs, it needs something to um, focus its attention on, which brings us to the actual kind of thing, scapegoat mechanisms. Um, and so, everyone's probably heard about this scapegoat is kind of a popular term. We've talked a bit about the scapegoat mechanism in church as well. Um, but it's particularly helpful in thinking about how we see our see our world through the eyes of the mob. Um, and so what Girard talks about is um, that the mob sort of seeks peace. It wants resolution of something, or maybe it even has some noble aim that it's trying to achieve that might seem like a good thing. Um, but inevitably, the mechanism occurs. They they their path to that is through finding a scapegoat, um, and so a scapegoat is someone that gets um, inevitably ridiculed or um, violence is undertaken on them in some way, either physical or otherwise. Um, and they're they're normally someone that's apart from the group, so an outcast, someone who's vulnerable, like a woman in the story, or perceived as weak, or just the other, someone that's external to, to that group. Um, and so probably, like, I think the, the classic example is, like, in the playground. I was like, actually talking, I was working on this yesterday, and the kid was like, what are you doing, Dad? And so then I'm like, okay, so we're talk, talking about the, the scapegoat mechanism again. And they see it in the playground, like, 
I said, oh yeah, this is this thing ever happened? Like, and they're, oh yeah, the stage threes are like putting on the stage two kid. Um, and and like when it's when we're playing handball, and this is kind of what happens, is that in the playground you get the kids that all kind of bundle together, and you've got the in group that is in for whatever reason, and inevitably someone else gets um, chosen as the kid that's going to be the victim, and that um, makes the group that's in and in control all feel good and feel like they got a place to belong and are safe and whatever. So, um, and to me, like, I, I couldn't think about places when I've been on both sides of that. Sometimes when I when it was the weak kid that got picked on, I remember some of those. Um, and other times when I was part of the in-group that thinking mindlessly and picking the scapegoat to, um, to pick on. And the same thing, I guess, happens for us as adults. We um, have in-groups, we have groups that we belong to, Probably got people that are definitely on that outside of that group that are the others. I'll talk about some of those in a sec. Um, and so the crowd, the crowd is kind of ignorant in their violence or in our violence. Um, and Renee Jard says to have a scapegoat is not to know that you have one. Um, and the other dynamic that we talked about is that the crowd actually um, has to be unanimous. In their belief of the victim's guilt. So um, we see it particularly in this story is that they there's no doubt in their mind that this, this woman was caught in adultery, she was guilty, there was it was like a certain thing. The violent patriarchy of the day um, selected the vulnerable woman, the outcast, the other, um, the man who knows where he was, he's not even mentioned in the story, um, and they have no doubt she's guilty. <coughs> And the law says this. So it's kind of, it's all really clear cut. Um, and almost it's probably like a double scapegoating here. So the woman is the victim of the religious powers and the enforcement of like their patriarchal laws. Um, and she's used also in this hunt to get at Jesus as the inevitable kind of scapegoat. And so they're trying to enforce their laws. They feel justified in enforcing these laws, but somehow... Um, in, in doing this, if they were successful in that, then the justice and the peace that they might have wanted actually would have been upended anyway. Um, and we actually we see this really in, in Jesus' life um, at the end. So remember that the angry mob that gathers to like crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Um, and this angry mob took control. And, and so you've got Pilate and Herod taking place in the story as well. And um, Pilate originally in that in that story, when the angry mob is trying to get at Jesus, he sees the innocence of Jesus and, and kind of says, no, he's innocent. I don't see anything um, that he's done wrong here. But eventually he kind of gives way to the lie and join, inadvertently joins the, the angry mob um, at the time. And there's a really interesting statement in Luke 23 um, where it says... Um, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, um, dressing him in an elegant robe, sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And so this is this really interesting example of the scapegoat mechanism happening. It's, it's, it's creating peace. It's creating um, this unification of these two powers, Herod and Pilate, that are unified in their victimization of who they 
well, you know, Pilate didn't, but then chose to believe the lie of Jesus' guilt. Um, and so this is this is part of this um, fascinating dynamic of the of the scapegoat mechanism is the is the ability to avoid guilt by doing two things: one, putting it on the other that is being scapegoated, um, and then also hiding in the crowd. Um, so uh, at school, thank goodness it's over, like we don't have to wear masks anymore. Maybe we should be. We don't have to, but. Term, term one and term two, I think it was this year, we, everyone was wearing masks in school. And as a teacher, it was like the worst thing ever because you've got like, imagine this whole room, everyone's got masks on and I'm trying, I'm trying to teach. And then you can hear people talking and I'm like, is that, is that, is that Eloise? Like, but everyone is kind of talking, but no one is kind of talking at the same time. And so you can't actually tell, you can't be like, oi! Because that's how I dress. Naughty kids in the class. Oh, wait. Um, you can't pick out the person that's talking because everyone is guilty and no one is guilty at the same time. And that's that's the power of the mob or the angry crowd in this. And that's kind of what happens in the stoning story too. Is that in like in a stoning, everyone's, everyone throws rocks. Who is who's the person? Like if they had stoned this woman, who is the person that kills her? Who is the guilty one? No one. And everyone. But, but really no one, um, no single individual carries that responsibility. Um, so somehow miraculously, um, all responsibility, or conscience, all individual thought um, become diluted down to nothingness because we're all just sort of become part of the, the mob, or the mindless thing, the untruth of crowd. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I thought maybe, maybe we'll just have a think about where some examples are in um, in our world, and you might be thinking of some at the same at the same time. So feel free to, to share them. Um, one I was thinking about is our refugee policy in Australia and the way we've treated refugees. Is we have this crowd effect and and scapegoating effect happening at the same time. We have this sort of fear of of the other. We have this desire to maintain control and so the weak um, person that is isolated and vulnerable and wanting to seek shelter we push away and say no to or or put away on an island in horrific conditions in the middle of nowhere and because of our you know that's not a decision that I made it's not a decision that anyone here made but as a country it's a decision that has been made somehow Um, um, or I was watching Q&A on Weeks from time, I talking about climate policy stuff, and um, someone in the crowd talked about oh, why, why should Australia take much of a stance on climate action? We're only one percent of the world's global emissions. Like, if we got rid of all our emissions, only one percent doesn't matter. And like, that stuff, like, classic, isn't it? Like, there's no, we don't have any responsibility because we're only one small part. It's exactly the same thing that happens in the story here, is that we can hide in the anonymity of just being one small cog. Um, in the machine. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I heard someone else talking about this. I'm stealing their content. But in um, in the US, like you, love this, you, uh, you might have seen these signs at anti-Trump rallies that, that said, love Trump's hate. But did you ever see those signs? They said, love Trump's hate. So the idea of these signs is that love is better than hate. So love Trump's hate. And they were clever because they put 
been there. So let's love, let's not hate. Um, but I, I think the, uh, the sign also exposes probably this scapegoating that happened on the more progressive side in um, the American political system where um, it was easy to actually, this sounds weird to even saying it, but to have Trump as a scapegoat. So we can be so righteous in, in we're so much better and see um, so much more progressively than Trump. So we actually, we actually love Trump's hate. And it actually feels good for us to be righteous and good because we're not like Trump because he is horrible, which is probably true. Um, but maybe that's just I'm part of the, I'm part of the machine. Maybe I don't, I don't see the loveliness of Trump. Um, <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter what the group is. It can be a group, um, yeah, that is kind of virtually connected. It can be one side of politics. It could be one side of, of your workforce. If these kind of things, they sort of happen, happen everywhere. Um, and so then the other thing to note, and I sort of mentioned this before, is that it sort of it works. The scapegoat mechanism attains peace. Peace is achieved. Pilate and Herod became friends. There's this temporary um, yeah, unification that happens, but inevitably another scapegoat is required, another scapegoat is required, because once that person has, um, you know, all the wrath of the group, then it needs another target eventually. So it's only ever a temporary peace. Um, to go over to the next slide, Ryan. And so the last part of um, Gerard's three sort of stages is the stage of revelation. And so we see this in what Jesus does in the story. Um, and so Gerard's revelation um, says that when there is like an unveiling of the, or a revealing of the scapegoat mechanism, so that it can be seen, then it actually breaks the power of the mob. Um, it, break, it exposes that sort of mimetic desire, that rivalry, that violence that's happening. And I think in, the, in the John 8, there's a lot of, Jesus talks a lot about the truth. Um, and the, the line, the truth will set you free, is like really kind of evident in this mechanism here, is that the lie of the scapegoat once the truth is seen, it actually breaks us free out of this perpetual cycle of scapegoating. Um, and so what Jesus does in the story is kind of, it's actually like a foreshadowing of what happens to Jesus in himself as well. And so we see, we see I said, I said, he writes with his finger in the sand um, and it doesn't, actually say what he wrote, and obviously it doesn't really matter, otherwise whoever wrote the story would have told us that it was it, what it was. But the point is that he drew in the sand, he like stored the momentum of the group, um, and then he says those words that we um, are so familiar with, that let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And it's like, it's just genius, isn't it? Because he is drawing their attention from the from their perceived guilt of this woman and getting them to reflect on themselves. And so in getting them to examine themselves, um, he shows the crowd that um, they're not the innocent enforcers of the law. They're not, um, yeah, these innocent people that are, (laughs) 
just going to throw a rock with no responsibility. He shows that the scapegoat mechanism is at play, and in doing so, he breaks the power of that mechanism. Um, and so this is this is the like the foretaste of what he does on the cross. Um, Jesus becomes the ultimate scapegoat um, by God actually willingly becoming the scapegoat of humanity's wrath, which is, I guess, this flip of, of how we would often have had it framed, that the wrath of God needed to be, you know, appeased on the cross. Well, maybe if we look at it through the lens of the scapegoat, it's humanity's wrath, and God bears the weight and becomes the willing scapegoat of, of humanity's wrath. And then in doing that, he exposes and undermines the whole thing, that whole mechanism, um, once and for all, shows that we need to, and in him, are able to move beyond this perpetual cycle of violence, and scapegoating, and othering, and move toward nonviolence and a great faith way of living. Um, and yeah, he shows that, um, shows us, I guess, what grace and forgiveness really are. Um, and maybe that it's not penal substitutionary atonement where maybe the debt has been paid and so no forgiveness is actually required because the debt has been paid. Um, but this maybe there's an alternate theory where Jesus isn't appeasing the Father, but God is the victim, is the knowing, the knowing scapegoat. And again, that idea that the truth that Jesus shows us in that moment, the truth will set us free. And so just the last thing I just want to talk about to, to bring us to the end, and then we'll, we'll kind of, I'll get everyone to have a think and we'll talk about it together, um, is that this, and I just I think it's so beautiful in, in light of this, what Jesus says to the woman at the end. Um, and it just gives a completely different take on it because it's no longer this statement of go and stop sinning, I'm not throwing a stone, but I'm telling you to go and stop what you're doing. Um, but rather, in light of breaking the scapegoat mechanism, when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin, that he's saying, neither do I condemn you. The mechanism is broken. Go and leave. Like, you are free. He's saying you are no longer bound in this cycle of, for the woman being the victim. But maybe in the context of kind of what, what John's saying in this in this whole passage, a lot of a lot of obviously what the story is about is is this group effect, and so maybe this statement is not just to the woman. Maybe this statement is also a statement of freedom to the crowd, that you are free from this this cycle of violence, this cycle of being stuck in, in the crowd thinking mob and mindlessly participating in the broken systems of the world. You are free. The truth will set you free, and. That's such good news, great news for the woman, great news for the mob, and, the, and I guess in Jesus, that's, that's, that's great news for us. And um, it's, I guess it's not a passive thing, it's not just a like, yep, good, we're free, but it's an invitation to, to go and leave the system, leave the cycle, leave the, the round and round scapegoating mechanism that we find ourselves in. Um, and so I want to, I want to, I guess, encourage us in that today. But I'm going to get us to think about, think about this and kind of share back in a sec. So that this, 
Hopefully that feels like good news because I feel like in my life, um, in the last handful of years, as I've just been, as I've thought a bit about what Jesus was was doing in his life and in his death, this kind of way of thinking about it has um, just gives me such a better depth of thinking in how I go, well, what does it mean how I live my life? Well, it liberates me to see through the things that are at work in our world, the broken systems of oppression and of violence that I unwittingly partake in, that we um, are complicit in without even knowing it sometimes. But um, Jesus exposes those things and calls us, I guess, to, to do the same with people that live um, in the truth, in not in a way that, like I have the truth, but in a way that sheds light on, on violence and oppression in our world. Cool. So, now it's your turn. So I've just put up a couple, sort of two main questions, and maybe what we'll do is we might split up into maybe groups of like four or five, around that sort of number, and and just have a chat about these questions, or if there's other things that you want to talk about um, from what I've said. Um, but yeah, these these might be good ones to start with. So, um, what are our angry crowds today? I talked about a couple of examples. Um, and then where, where might you be blind in your assuredness about something? Now, that's a really hard one. You know, oh, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> um, but so maybe, maybe that's just something to reflect on. But um, if you have, if, if there are things that come to mind that you think in our world, in, in your own life, you see, or starting to see things, that would be really interesting to hear. Um, and then, yeah, this idea of what does, what does freedom look like for us? The truth sets us free. Breaking into these mechanisms sets us free. What, um, what does that look like? Because it's it's got to it's got to look like something. It's not just it shouldn't just be an intellectual freedom. It's got to be a real life thing. Um, so yeah, have a chat about those. And then if there's other things that you yeah thought about or disagreed with or whatever, like but yeah, I, I I'd love for you know that as we sort of do all these different things in church, for us to really be able to wrestle. With, with the verse and to um, and to disagree on stuff and to yeah be have have really good robust discussions with community about that so um, yeah jump into into groups and then in a few minutes I'll I'll jump up and get you just to maybe feedback some of your thoughts and kind of discuss it and things that you through. Cool. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.